He is risen. risen Welcome on this beautiful Easter morning. As I said, my name is Jesse Robinson, and I add my welcome to that of Wade and Lane. If you are visiting here, if you're new here, we are so glad that you are here. Wherever you are in your faith journey, you are welcome. You're welcome. I was recently working out at a gym in downtown Charlottesville. That might surprise you. Honestly, it surprises me. <laughs> I'm disabled and I have cerebral palsy, which means when I'm at the gym, like I just have really low bars. Like I'm just, I just want to run around that track like once. That's all I'm going for. And, but you know, you, know, you know what it is to be at a gym, right? You, you are surrounded by these impeccable human specimens, right? I mean, the guy that is lifting with one hand, one hand what I can't lift with, like, two. And as I'm exercising, I, I catch a, a glimpse out the window. I see a, a cemetery across the street. A cemetery. That's always a sobering sight. Isn't it when you, when you drive by a cemetery and, oh yeah, I'm going to die especially sobering in a gym, <laughs> right? Why am I doing this? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Why is anyone doing this? <laughs> a cemetery is a world of death. The stones, these white granite markers, they're foreshadowing what's to come ahead of each one of us. See, no matter how healthy or how strong or how many hours we log in the gym, like, that's where we're headed. Every one of us. Even you and your vineyard vines and your pastels this morning, you're looking good. But that's where we're headed. The toddler that I baptized, the baby, the newborn that you hold, they too will die. We all are, and it's an unsettling reality, isn't it? It's a universally unavoidable truth, and yet we avoid it universally. If you are not taken in by the unnatural tragedy, it will be the natural tragedy of your cells slowly succumbing to death, a death that will eventually colonize your whole system. The very roots of your undoing lie within you. And then there are the other kinds of death, like even the good things about life, the beautiful things, like they all come to an end. They die. You know this. You know the death of dreams, the death of ambitions, the death of friendships, of marriages, the death of displacement, the death of failure. And so in the midst of all this death, we, we live in this landscape of death, this season we've been preaching through the wilderness, and we are living in a wilderness of death. But friends, we come now to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. We're going to look at three things, three parts of resurrection. First, the validity of the resurrection, the vindication of the resurrection, and the victory of the resurrection. Validity, vindication, and the victory. Would you pray with me as we open God's Word? 
Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come that we may have life. Lord, we need that life now. So by your Spirit, would you infuse us with it? We pray the same thing that Moses prayed on that mountain. Show us your glory, please, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So first, the validity of the resurrection. The validity, the, the truth. Is it true? The case for Christianity rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, in our, in our culture, I don't hear a lot of critics of Christianity bringing up the resurrection. That's not what's shameful or contentious about Christianity. What I hear most about is sex, what, what Christianity has to say about sex, sexual ethics. But frankly, if we can just cordon off the ethics, the, the sexual ethics of Christianity, like, that doesn't really matter if the resurrection isn't true. You see, if the resurrection isn't true, who cares what the Bible has to say? It's irrelevant. So, so the center of the matter is the resurrection, and that's what we need to deal with. Is the resurrection true? Is it valid? Resurrection was as implausible, implausible in the ancient Near East as it is today. In our modern snobbiness, we like to think that those ancients were gullible and credulous, that they were just as inclined to doubt. But, but they were just as inclined to doubt as, as us, especially the possibility of the resurrection. The Sadducees in the Scriptures, they're this religious group that they're known for their doubt in the resurrection. And we see this, this doubt even with the disciples. Like in our story, when the women hear the word from the angels that Jesus is risen, and they go back to tell Jesus' closest followers, how does his followers react? Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. An idle tale. Nonsense. The, the, the word in the Greek actually means nonsense. It's actually even profane. In Texas, we have a word for that. When you, it's called bull. Like, that's the Greek. It's ridiculous. That's how the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, that's how they regard this story of the resurrection. And so the Bible fully recognizes the impossibility, the implausibility of the resurrection. Like, it, it lives in the same world of physics as you and I. So the question is, how did the apostles go from calling the resurrection baloney bull to giving their very lives for this message? How did that happen? That's the question. And it's because they believed wholeheartedly in the validity of the resurrection. We're going to look at three ways, three parts of the validity. In his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham writes that these resurrection accounts we read have all the markings of an eyewitness account. The genre isn't legend. It's not myth. It's actually eyewitness account. First, first point, the women. You've probably heard this. But women were not legally allowable witnesses in either the Roman system, court system or the Jewish. 
And so, and yet all four Gospels document women as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you are like coming up with a new religion in, in ancient, the ancient Near East, like that's a bad PR move. <laughs> they would have said, Luke, this is a bad idea. Why would they do this? Because it actually happened. It's actually reporting how it actually happened. In fact, this will come back against Christianity. One of the chief detractors, critics of Christianity in the second century, his name was Celsus. Just get ready for some second century misogyny here. He would attack Christianity because the chief witness was, quote, a hysterical female, Mary Magdalene. It, why, would, why would that happen unless it was true? Secondly, the names. So Mary Magdalene is named in verse 10 along with Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Richard Bauckham says that these names in the Gospels are like footnotes. You, you know footnotes. They're a way of, of documenting the sources. And the Gospel writers all wanted to certify the credibility of their stories by naming the living eyewitnesses their stories were from. And so when you catch a name in the Gospels, that's a footnote. It's a footnote. For instance, in Mark's Gospel, as Jesus is going to the cross, he can't hold the cross up. And so Simon of Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene carries the cross, and then Mark gives this footnote. He says, you know Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Who is Alexander and Rufus? They're nowhere in the story. Nowhere in Mark's Gospel. But they were known in the ancient Christian community, like, like they were people that you could go to. And so what Mark is saying is, do you want it? You want credibility? You want validity? Go talk to Rufus and Alexander. It's the same with these women. These women were, were uh, pillars in the ancient Christian community. And the gospel writers are inviting a, a fact check. Thirdly, these names are just a few of the many witnesses to Christ's appearance. In one of the earliest letters after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians, Paul names that Christ has appeared to hundreds, hundreds of people, hundreds of eyewitnesses. Most of them are still alive. In fact, one of those instances just comes in, in our gospel passage right after this, the rest of Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus appears to the disciples. And, and know that then it's, it's only when he appears that they begin to believe. It says in Luke 24, it says, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And, and that's the point. The disciples needed evidence. They're not going to believe a resurrection unless they see it and experience it and touch it with their own hands and eyes. Christianity is not just a religion for the gullible. Not just for those who are easy believing. It's for those who require evidence. And the Bible over and over again gives evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth is that these apostles, like they're the ones that wrote the Gospels, they are self-branding themselves as sniveling, fearful doubters. Why would they do that? 
bad PR move. They're doing it because it's true. They are witnessing to the truth of what happened. And the most incredible part of Christianity is how this group of ragtag doubters are transformed into fearless proclaimers of the gospel. They're going to declare to the Roman Empire that Jesus has risen. And they know that everyone's going to think they're crazy. They thought it was crazy, but it happened. It happened. And within 300 years, this truth, this proclamation is going to upend the entire Roman Empire. You know, Greco-Roman culture, it's this incredible cultural artifice. And Christianity is going to turn it all on its head. Why? Because of the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Japanese writer Shusaku Endo says it like this. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing. Maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. I love this line. For if we try to explain the change to lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed in the resurrection to start with. In other words, like, what else could it be? It's going to have to take a leap of faith. Let's get to our second point, the vindication of the resurrection. You know, the old liberal Christianity, it loved Jesus' words, his life, but it rejected his resurrection. It went something like this. Jesus lived a good ethical life worthy of invitation. He's a great teacher, like Plato. But that resurrection, it smacks of primitive superstition, like science, right? Science says that life doesn't exist after death. But Christ's life and message make no sense without the resurrection. Like Jesus made larger-than-life claims. He spoke of bringing a kingdom. He claimed to be the king. Like, if I did that with y'all, I'm pretty sure you would put me on the street. I'd be lost away. He declared that he was the resurrection and the life. He even claimed to be God. And if it all ended with his death on the cross, then his words were delusional. But the resurrection vindicates Jesus. His self-conception, it vindicates his mission, his life, his identity. Let me explain. It's interesting how the angels contend for the resurrection. Did you see what they appealed to? Look in your bulletin to verse 6. They say, he is not here. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They say, remember, he told you this. It's one thing for Jesus to be resurrected. It's a whole other thing to say, I told you so. And that's what Jesus did. The angels are saying. The angels are appealing to Christ's own words. So when the apostles don't believe it, when they don't believe the women's testimony, they're actually not believing Jesus himself. You see, the resurrection vindicates Jesus. He died one of the most shameful executions. And in Judaism, dying on a tree 
was evidence of God's curse. How could Jesus be righteous, be good, be holy? If he was, then he should have never been allowed to die. Like God is not just. If God would let Jesus, the most perfect, beautiful man, die, how is God just? That's the logic. That's the logic. God is not just. But if Jesus is resurrected, that is God vindicating the life of Jesus. That's God saying, see, he was who he said he was. The resurrection is God, the divine judge, hammering the gavel and declaring he is innocent. He is innocent. He should never have died. And the resurrection also vindicates us who believe in him. Let me explain. St. Paul makes this point in Romans 4.24. says, God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice that Paul said, delivered up for our trespasses. But look back at what Luke 24, 7 said. Delivered into the hands of sinful men. So how did Luke, who says delivered into the hands of sinful men, that's Jesus' language, how did delivered into the hands of sinful men turn into delivered up for our trespasses? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? How, how did that happen? We know that Jesus was killed by sinful men, but how did it happen that he actually died for sins? And it has everything to do with Paul. We need to talk about Paul and the resurrection here. You see, Paul also hated the resurrection. When Paul first hears about Jesus, he despises him. Why? Because you cannot find a people, a religious group, that would be less likely to believe that God was a man and the Jews. It's the greatest heresy for the Jews. God, a man? Ridiculous. And so Paul hears Jesus making this claim. He thinks that's ridiculous. And then to add on top of it, Jesus dies this incredibly terrible death. And so Paul's saying, yeah, Jesus got what he deserved. He's a heretic. That's God punishing him. And when did Paul change his mind? when he encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that changed everything. It vindicated Jesus in Paul's eyes. And Paul began to think everything back out. All of a sudden he gets it. Follow me here. If Jesus' resurrection vindicates his innocence, why did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? It must not have been for his own sins, because he was innocent, he was resurrected. It must have been for someone else's sins. And that's the key. Paul starts reading the Old Testament in 3D. Remember the bulls and the lambs that were offered to atone for the people's sins. Jesus was himself the Lamb of God. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was not only delivered up into the hands of sinful men, he was also delivered up for our sins. So what you have is you have Jesus the innocent who is suffering the wrath of God and giving his native innocence to us who deserve the wrath of God. Jesus is paying for the sins of us. 
Do you see how that vindicates us? Remember, this is, this is the vindication of the resurrection. The resurrection vindicates us who put our faith in Him. Who put our faith in Him. Friends, we have all sorts of sin. The Bible tells that we are under this curse. The land is cursed. That we can't not sin. It's who we are. And yet here is the good news of the gospel. Is that Jesus comes and he says, Father, pour out the punishment that they deserve on me. And may they be vindicated. May they be justified in my resurrection. That's the vindication of the resurrection. Finally, the victory of the resurrection. The resurrection, I'm going to name three things. It gives us victory over three things. First, it gives us victory over guilt. Now, I know that some of you are weighed down by the guilt of your past, the foolish things you've done, the things you should have done, the addictions and the self-destructive behaviors that cling to our hearts that are so a part of us that they, we think they are us. Like, that resurrection, it offers you victory over guilt. The guilt that you experience in this life. If your faith is in Jesus, Jesus has risen. And Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you hear that? If you're suffering under guilt, the resurrection of Jesus means that there is new life. You have been vindicated. The resurrection also offers victory over death itself. Remember, death is the last existential enemy. In fact, St. Paul speaks of death as the last enemy. But in his resurrection, Christ takes on that last enemy, defeating death himself. And he offers his resurrection as a down payment for all those who would believe in him. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. That means there's more coming. There's going to be a harvest. That is the guarantee to us who follow after Jesus. There is a resurrection. If you are in Jesus, there is a resurrection coming for you. Finally, the resurrection offers victory over sorrow. At the very end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the hobbit Samwise Gamgee is recovering from the great battle. He's been unconscious. He's awoken by the wizard Gandalf's words, who he thought was dead. He thought Gandalf was dead. This is what Tolkien writes. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf! I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. Friends, do you hear that? In Christ's resurrection, when we see him, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. And yet, in the resurrection, everything that is sad is becoming untrue. In fact, that's how the Bible ends. The very end of the story. There's this incredible 
incredible part where God is coming down to earth, the second from the end, the chapter from the end. In Revelation 21, verse 24, listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Bible's saying everything that is sad is going to get untrue. That's the victory of the resurrection. That's the victory over guilt, over death, over sadness. Paul has this incredible taunting of death in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the victory of the resurrection. In our story in Luke 24, only one apostle, Peter, does not write off the woman's testimony. And he has the audacity to check it out for himself. It says in verse 12, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Marveling. Friends, that is the only reasonable response to the resurrection, to marvel. Do you marvel with him? Do you marvel that all the sadness could be undone? Do you marvel that you are meant to defy death, to live forever? But Peter still misses it. Remember what the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Peter goes back to the tomb. Peter, that's not where Jesus is. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Which is another way of saying, like, are you seeking the living? Are you seeking life? Jesus is the life. And his mission was to give life, to breathe his life into those who were dead, into those who would die. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, in 12 Years a Slave, the movie about a, a slave, or a free man who was captured and then re-enslaved, Solomon Northup is, is learning from his fellow slaves what this slave life will be, and they're trying to teach him how to survive as a slave. He says this, I don't want to survive. I want to live. Friends, is that what you're saying? Are you just surviving? Or do you want to live? Because he is the living. Jesus is the living. What does it mean to really live? It means just a couple things I want to give you here. It means to know that God made you. It means to know your purpose in this life. It means that there's meaning. It means that everything, absolutely everything has meaning. It drips with divine meaning. The floor that you stepped on after you woke the hot coffee that ran down your tongue, the person that you nodded to, every bit of that, every bit of your life is a gift from God. 
Everything you have and everything you are is a gift from God. That's what it means to live, to recognize that, to be thankful, to be grateful. To live means to renounce all those ignoble impulses that are deep in your heart, the petty entitlements, the greedy ambition, the aimless pleasure-seeking, the navel-gazing anxieties, and the insecurities. It means to renounce that and to take Jesus the living. That's what it means to live. That's what Jesus came for. He didn't come just so you could survive. He came that you might live. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is the living and you can be too. When I left the gym that day, I headed for that cemetery. It was actually a double monument of death. Mortal death, yes, but also the death of racism and segregation. You see, it was an African-American cemetery, a monument to the enforced segregation of burial grounds in the Jim Crow South. And as I paced this cemetery, reading the headstones, I saw these glimpses, these visions of the resurrection. These people who were oppressed, marginalized, they had this incredible faith that the resurrection was coming. Listen to this. A Christian without guilt. That was the epitaph. A Christian without guilt. Isn't that glorious? Don't you want that written on your grave? A Christian without guilt. Or safe in the arms of Jesus. Safe from corroding care. And then finally, I, I saw this last headstone. It dated back to the 19th century. And all it says is, Asleep in Jesus. Asleep in Jesus. You see, death to this brother, it was a nap. And any day now, that brother is going to wake up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be alive. We thank you that Jesus is the living. That he was not bound by the snares of death. I pray that you would make us alive. By your spirit, by your word by the bread and the wine that we're about to eat. In Christ's holy name, amen.